Is there a library or bookstore around here where I could books on rock and roll? Rock and roll. Story's true. Well, have you read this one? This is this is a story that needs to be told. These rock and rollers want something to read. Shh. Quiet, please. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another segment of the Rock and Roll Librarian. With me today, as always, is Shelly Sorensen from the San Francisco Library. Say hello, Shelly. Hi, Christian. How you doing today? I'm doing good. How about you? I'm doing fantastic. Uh, we uh, just launched uh, episode eight of the Rock and Roll Archaeology podcast out into the world. The second of the Beatles episodes, two hours of Beatles uh, months of research has come to an end, and I am very happy about that. We are on to episode nine and trying to put that together, but I won't talk too much about that because it's a big <laughs> secret. <laughs> so what have you got for us today, Shelley? I have a book today, which is called um, Bowie on Bowie, which is Interviews and Encounters with David Bowie, edited by Sean Egan. Oh, no, you had to bring my favorite guy in today. Huh? <laughs> I did. I know he's your favorite. All right. Let's uh, let's start in with this. So it's it's a it's a book of interviews uh, kind of explain to the folks what uh, what what that's all about. OK, it's well, it's part of a, apparently a series called Interviews and Encounters, which oh, when did it come out? Um, oh, this book came out in 2015. And uh, they have done other, you know, there's been other ones done in this series. I believe they did one um, with Bruce Springsteen. Um, but anyway, it's oh, a... It's okay. A, it's not, they're not going to do like a series of Bowie no, interviews. No, no, no. It's they're, uh, they're like they did uh, Coltrane on okay. Coltrane, Hendrix oh. on Hendrix. So oh, it's a, cool. it's a, you know, it's a publishing series. The editor has, has gathered together a bunch of interviews that were done with what he considers the, some of the best interviews, obviously not all of them because he's done many, many interviews, but the first interview was, um, 1969 and the last one is in November of 2003 and they're interviews from mostly British magazines Melody Maker New Musical Express and one called Q that I'm not familiar with uh, uh, they also yes. have one from Rolling Stone and GQ and in each interview right before launching into the to the interview the editor uh, you know kind of sums up what was interesting about it and includes comments from the interviewers who, who say, you know, what it was like to interview David Bowie, which was apparently a pretty awesome experience. One, one interviewer said afterwards that his jaw hurt from grinning for an hour without a break. So apparently uh, <laughs> Bowie was quite charming in person as he was on stage. Uh, many, many stories about how charming uh, he really was. That's right. What I have gotten out of all the research that I've done on the man, listened to the interviews uh, that have uh, been on the radio and online, and you can find a bunch on YouTube these days, is just how open and honest an interviewee he was. It, just no pretenses. Just ask a question, and he would try to give you as close to an honest answer as he could. Yeah, that really that really shines through in this book. All of the interviewers um, 
you know, comment that he's uh, articulate, warm, honest, charming, and not uh, not into the hard sell of his latest product. He really wants to talk about, you know, what he's thinking about, what he's working on next. Um, in fact, often... Ideas. He liked talking about ideas yeah. and literature and art history and jazz and... Um, Philosophy. Truly a renaissance man, if there ever was in the latter half of the 20th century. Well, let's uh, let's bring the elephant into the room here. As, uh, <laughs> Is that a comment about him playing the elephant man on uh, no, Broadway? <laughs> no, no, yes, yes. And a, a multidimensional artist, That's too. That's right. Which we, and a we painter, can, too. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, you know, an actor in film and stage, um, a creator of these characters uh, as, a, as a rock and roll artist. Um, just an, an amazing man, but the elephant I'm talking about is the fact that he's no longer with us. Oh yeah. And uh, you know, we'll we'll go through uh, our discussion here, and and we'll talk a little bit about the um, the the fact that the world does not David Bowie does not inhabit this world. Yeah, anymore, and and so. actually, I want to mention that this this book came out before he passed away, so it wasn't a kind of jump on the bandwagon to make money off of his death or anything like that. It was something that was planned to come out. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So 1969 to 2003. So the first thing it tells me is that we're probably going to start somewhere around the space oddity uh, era, and we're going to end in uh, with the reality album uh, and tour when when he pretty much um, he had the heart incident in 2004 uh, in Germany and uh, uh, pretty much quit touring and talking to the press at the same time. Yep, that's that's right. It it ends uh, right before I guess right before he goes on tour. Okay. So 1969, um, do you want to start us off with one of these interviews and what sure. uh, what was going on? Yeah, the very first one in the book is uh, appeared in New, New Musical Express. The Enemy. An Enemy. <laughs> and um, this was obviously um, put together because his first hit was uh, really rocketing around Space Oddity, which was released as as the world was watching the moon landing. And he was only um, 22 years old. Yeah, he, he'd actually been working hard at trying to be a star for several years, uh, first as David Jones, and uh, due to uh, another famous uh, musical star, uh, changed his name to um, to David Bowie. Uh, he um, took on a couple of different musical styles as they were coming into prominence uh, in the latter half of the 60s. Uh, if I remember right, uh, Space Oddity is kind of a, a novelty song um, that uh, was put together. And I want to think that it was, they were, there was part of the Euro song contest or something like that, but I don't know if they, they talked about that no. in the interview. So let's let, let's talk about what was said in the interview. Oh, yeah. Um, well, I mean, one thing I thought was pretty cute was, you know, to think about, um, I know you're not supposed to think of rock and roll artists as cute, but anyway, um, 20, he's, you know, 22 years old and he has his first hit and he says, uh, he, he bought a small house and a big car with his hit money. And it just, um, hit me, hit me that, uh, that's what, 
most young men would probably do with their money. Then that's they would, what I do. And with then my they'd money. buy their mothers a house too. So that's what I hear a lot of athletes and musicians do with their yeah, money. You know, uh, buy mom a house after um, your own in the big car. Right of after course. you buy your own house. Um, and then he he talked about uh, why the why the songs on the album were not about boy and girl relationships, which is I guess you know it's what what a lot of rock and roll songs are about love and sex and all that. He says I've I've never had any traumas with girls. I like to think of myself as a pretty stable person, and I've never had a bad relationship with an intelligent girl, which I loved. You know, like of course there's plenty of of course you did crazy and intelligent girls around, but you know, we won't go into that. Um, and then when he was asked about a follow-up, you know, he's kind of like, well, wait a minute, this one is still, you know, going, you know, they're always trying to say, what are you going to do next? And he said, I'm not sure I've got a suitable song for another single, but it's a bit early in life for all my ideas to have dried up, isn't it? So I suppose I'll come up with something. Which was it's really funny in sixty nine and he's twenty two years old and then from from this distance to think about how many other ideas he had along the way. Right. So after sixty nine, I think he uh, then uh, makes the man who sold the world in nineteen seventy, and he was building a following in the UK. Not nothing in in the United States at this point. And after that, in 71, I think he, he makes uh, his first uh, classic album, his first masterpiece, uh, which is Hunky Dory uh, in 1971. So uh, any kind of interviews uh, around that period? Yes. Yeah. He um, talks about he had kind of a fatalistic you know, attitude in a lot of his songs. And, uh, but th- at that <laughs> that's, time, that's putting it mildly, yeah. but sure. <laughs> at that time, um, it looks like his, uh, his son, Duncan or yeah, Duncan Jones, yeah. Zoe was born at mm-hmm. that. Do you say Zoe or Zowie? No, Zoe. Like Zoe. Bowie. Okay. Zoe Bowie. Yeah. yeah. And, um, so he, he said, uh, you know, so there was a glimmer of hope in, in the song, uh, for example, Oh, You Pretty Things, which is Ooh, uh, supposed one. to be about a, a father singing to his child. Really? Yeah. Well, let's see if uh, the audience agrees with us. Ladies and gentlemen, here is David Bowie's Oh, You Pretty Things from Hunky Dory. What are we coming to? No room for me, no fun for you. I think about a world to come where the books were found by the golden ones Written in vain, written it all by a puzzled man who questioned what we were here for All the strangers came today, and it looks as though they're here to stay Oh, you pretty things, don't you know you're dropping your That's uh, that's a very cool David Bowie song. Yeah, I think that you know one thing that I thought was really amazing that he said uh, when he was talking about that album was he said I think we have created a new kind of person, a child who will, who will be so exposed to the media that will, he will be lost to his parents by the time he is twelve, which I thought was really interesting to say Prescient. for the early seventies, like. 
um, or 1970. I don't know exactly when that came out. That, um, you know, if you if you took the word media and you swapped in Internet or, you know, <laughs> mobile device, anything, yeah, devices or whatever. I mean, that's exactly what's happening. You know, the kids, you could even skew the number uh, earlier. Yeah. Well, probably was reading a little Marshall McLuhan and uh, the media is the message and the message is the media. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, let's face it, television, uh, you know, we 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 we, we were just beginning the the television age and the television child uh, were uh, were just coming to age at that point so um, I could see where he could look out into the future and uh, and feel that yes great so let's see what does he do does, I, I think that's it for him right is that is hunky dory that's about the end of David Bowie's career right I think so <laughs> <laughs> no, but this is where I enter the picture, Oh, which is really the most important part of the story, which is that um, when I was 15, I believe, in 1972, and you guys can all take out your calculators and figure that one out, but um, <laughs> I had the great fortune to actually see David Bowie in Santa Monica for the Ziggy Stardust tour. I won't act surprised because I know this story and I'm very jealous. So go on. (laughs) Too bad you're not as old as me. So, well, it was really interesting because I had a a friend who had been living in the UK for two or three years. Ah, So had been exposed. Yeah, and she had an older sister too. And and they Mm. came back um, to live... in in LA at the time and we got together and she and her sister asked me and my sister don't you do you want to go see David Bowie you know he's he's really you know the with it and I don't know what kind of language we used in those ways days hip, but hip and groovy he's, I don't know if we were still saying hip and groovy but it was the end of the you know kind of hippie Era and I would had been you know listening to the band and Bob Dylan and oh, yeah. you know kind hippie of like jeans rock. I was a you know the end of the hippie era and so I you know we said oh yeah sure we'll great go great stuff in its own yep great stuff in its own we'll go see but this, this new is guy. a dramatic departure here <laughs> yeah I didn't know anything about him yeah sure we'll go I, it may have been my almost my first concert and so we went to see him and I was like you know just blown away, obviously, um, as I said to you once, you know, I'd never seen anything like that before. And you'd said, nobody had. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah. And so I was just like, um, totally like, didn't really, I mean, I enjoyed it, but I didn't know what to make of him. And he was actually the very first person I'd ever heard of who was, was told that he was bisexual. And I didn't even know what that meant as I'm assuming many kids did not know um, at that time. And uh, I just, well, the whole thing was totally intriguing to me. Well, uh, you know, that was a, 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 a new door opening. David Bowie walked right through it. Uh, I think it's an interview in Rolling Stone magazine where he kind of says that uh, he was gay. Uh, and uh, I know he walks that back uh, later on. Um, let's talk about that. But before we do, I just want to point out that that Santa Monica uh, show was recorded 
period and it's live in Santa Monica in 72. So not only is it your first rock and roll show, not only is it David Bowie, but it's also recorded as a live album. Wow. Pretty and special. Can you hear me screaming on that album? I will listen from next time I, li- I hear the album. You bet. I mean, and I'm sure I'll be able to, you know, at least in my mind, point you out. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about the line in the sand that, that he put out there in, uh, in the early 70s about being a gay man. Yeah, yeah, it was one of these interviews in this in this book in Melody Maker, um, nineteen seventy two. Oh, so it was he, Melody Maker that he originally said that, yeah, in that Rolling Stone is I think where he walked it back. So Yeah, he's a, he says he's he's the most famous one where he says he's he first says he's gay. And, um, you know, he could just kind of tosses it off. Uh, one, one thing that was funny was... Which the, is kind of weird because he's married to Angie Bowie at the time. Yeah. And he just had a child. But, uh, you know, it's possible. Don't, don't get me wrong. But, uh, you know, the record does state that uh, if you look at the history of David Bowie's companions, none of them are male. That's right. But that's not, I don't think, unheard of for bisexual men, but... Sure, sure, sure. So then later on, he does walk it back uh, and uh, kind of says experimentation, I think, is where he left it, right? That's right. And like later, I think it was a 2000 interview where he says, you know, I was experimenting with a lot of things. I I just wanted to bring it up because I didn't want somebody to, you know, discover, you know, something horrid about me that you know that was lurking in the back room you know I just wanted to bring it out and I mean I think that was his attitude about a lot of a lot of stuff was like well I'm just doing this that's not a big deal I'm just doing it just me yeah I'm not saying it's right people should do it or anything um but uh one one funny thing uh that came out in that interview is the interviewer asks him, why aren't you wearing your dress today? And, um, yeah, like he says, I'm, I just don't like the clothes that you buy in shops. I don't wear dresses all the time either. I change every day. I'm not outrageous. I'm David Bowie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a fashion icon. Yeah. Unto I love himself. that. I mean, he's just trying, you know, like he does throughout his life. I'm just trying on new things and new That's the same thing and- with he, with his writing uh, of music. He, he, he did it to please himself, not an audience. And if the audience went along with it, great. So Shelly, what's your favorite song from Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars? It's really hard. I, I just listened to the album recently and I was like, yeah, that's my, fa- no, that's my favorite. No, that's my favorite. So I had a hard time picking um, one, but it's I'm not just the album. Um, I think it's the entire career that <laughs> right. I have that problem. With. <laughs> okay. So we're, I'm, I'm choosing hang on to yourself for this one. Oh, great choice. All right. Let's play a little bit of from Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. Hang on to yourself. Shelly, I think we've really got a good thing going here. Mm-hmm. 
All right, so that gets us to, uh, oh, the end of Ziggy Stardust, Spider's Mars. Uh, that was Hammersmith Odeon in uh, July, I think, 1973. Um, moves into Aladdin Sane. Um, so uh, what's the next interview that you want to bring to the party here? Well, I, I liked the times that he talks about John Lennon, who he... He mentions two or three or four times in, oh, the, in the various young interviews. The uh, thin white duke period. Okay. So, yeah. So he, he at one point, says, I love John Lennon. Um, and he talks about um, the writing of how they collaborated on the song Fame. Um, and he basically um, took Carlos Alomar's riff who was his guitar player that that he was going to do for a different song and he liked the riff so much that he said I'm going to let's take this riff and do a whole a whole new song with it so he started playing the riff and then Lennon who was hanging around you have to remind me why. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> one of the songs Bowie was doing is a cover of Across the Universe. And, oh, okay. Uh, and if I remember right, I think they, they were, yeah, they were just kind of, they were both living in New York at the time and uh, got together. So, but uh, uh, yeah, that's at Electric cool. Lady Studios uh, one night, um, having a good old time yeah. with two rock stars at their prime. Um, so what happens? And then Lennon walks in while Carlos, I guess, is playing this guitar riff and says, that's fucking great, that. What a great riff that is. Oh. And then John stood in his spot and made sounds, and it sounded not unlike the word fame. So, he's, I mean, I just have this picture in my head of John Lennon standing there just like grooving to this guitar riff and making some sound. Yeah, he's trying I, to find a melody and yeah. he's just faking words and yeah. see what happens. Yeah, I could see that. And then he and Bowie says, often just one just makes a sound <laughs> and it sounds like a word. And then you have one word that creates a subject and that evolves. And you know how I was asking you about uh, songwriting, song. <laughs> Christian? <laughs> I'm like, there's my songwriting tip there, right there. there. Just yep. make That's a sound. Done, now the secret's out. <laughs> now the secret. I just need a kick ass guitar riff to go with my my sound. Carlos Alomar is probably available. <laughs> yes. And then another uh, funny story about John Lennon is uh, when when uh, Bowie says he's talking about his creative process and saying it's great when you don't know what you're doing, you know, the idea being you don't know yeah, what you're, you're not, doing. You're, you're not stuck to conventions yeah, and, you're not and stuck now the and you're box just, is open and you can explore. And, yeah, you're uh, just experimenting. Yeah. Yeah. So he says, it's great when you don't know what you're doing. Like, like when Lennon told the orchestra to play from the bottom note to the top note for a day in the life yes. to the orchestra. Yes. <laughs> well, well, of course, George Martin was behind him saying, don't worry, boys. I, I know what he means. Start I'll on A it in a bit. and yes. work up to yeah, two <laughs> right. octaves up right, to A right, again. Right. Yeah. Lennon, well, Lennon didn't, I guess, you know, he's just like, get down there, start at the bottom and go up. That's a great chord. Everybody yeah. knows it. Um, uh, all right. So let's uh, hear that guitar riff. Fame uh, from Young Americans, 1975. This is David Bowie's first number one song in, uh, in America.
What yeah. a great song. You know, I love that. From so funk funky. to funky. Yes. So funky. Amazing. All right. So, uh, well, that's in 1975. Uh, what else you got for me out of that book? <laughs> I got, uh, well, there, there was a 1978 interview uh, where he talks about young Americans and that um, uh, blue, whole the period. The soul bit, yeah. Yeah, which I uh, actually... Plastic soul is what he called it. Yeah, I, I actually, it's one of my favorite um, periods of his because... I uh, like I like the funk. I like the R and B. You know the kind of he he talks about rekindling his love of R and B, and he worked with a multiracial band, which apparently was not as uh, kind of accepted as you might think for the seventies. Yeah. yeah, and um, he talks about the sound as that he turned the bass up and did naughty things with the snare drums, which I. I like that kind of um, visual of naughty things with the snare drums, um, but that's just me. Well, I'm not uh, going to say any more. Yeah. I'm just going to play <laughs> Young Americans from 1975. John Lennon didn't come in and say, all right, all right, I'll come in and help you out. <laughs> I love that Waylon Sachs, too. Oh, so amazing. Good. There's so much awesomeness in that yeah. song. And another thing about this particular interview that was just, uh, just a funny idea was that um, his girlfriend at the time her name her name was Ola Hudson mm. and she was um I think I know where you're going Slash's mom right. from yes. Guns N' Roses yeah. apparently yeah. he said I used to put him to bed at night little Slash <laughs> <laughs> and she was the wardrobe mistress on the movie uh, the man who fell to earth and also designed his clothes for the station to station tour so she kind of invented that whole look right like, was that his thin white duke uh, Look, yeah, station, think, station. Yeah, yeah. It's the the the, uh, the European man. Yes, um, uh, the uh, L.A. coke crazed era too, as well. Mm. Yeah, yeah. That's one of my favorite albums uh, from Bowie, Station to Station. So love that. Okay, so uh, we're uh, we're in the mid seventies. So yeah. hit a couple of the uh, uh, the songs from there. Take me to the next stage for Bowie's career. I I guess he moves to Berlin, right? He yes, has to he clean up his uh, his <laughs> Him and coke, a few others, his coke yes. and uh, speed uh, habit and. Just, you know, apparently America did a number on him, uh, especially L.A., I guess, um, where he just got so into the fame and the drugs. And he, he actually says that he didn't do drugs for recreational purposes. They were it was all for work related. Uh, <laughs> OK, that's one way needs. to put it. <laughs> yeah, no, 
I'm going to try that one. Uh, Strictly anyway. for work, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yes. Strictly for work. So he, anyway, he moves to Ber- Berlin and, you know, I mean, you know, that all those three albums that yeah, the were Berlin the Berlin trilogy, the Berlin uh, trilogy. That's right. Low um, Heroes. But I really, Lodger. I was really touched by what he said about being in Berlin and, um, uh, being a city made up of Under bars, siege. bars for sad, disillusioned people to get drunk in, which was one of the reasons he was attracted to it. And um, he really—it doesn't uh, sound like a good place no. to go and dry out, but okay. okay. If 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 booze isn't your thing, I suppose it would be true. Um, so he he wrote he actually painted a series of paintings about the Turks that live lived in berlin i don't know maybe there still is a, a, a large population mm-hmm. uh kind of in a slum like um area with really bad conditions and he you know he decided to paint portraits of them um in a they lived in a very isolated community and he says it was very very sad and that kind of reality contributed very much to the mood of both low and heroes because it was hard for him to sing really upbeat songs uh, being in that milieu so you know so he says the title track is about facing that kind of reality and standing up to it so oh, the title I've, track of, of the heroes. second album yeah heroes, of heroes. Right. and i've i always really liked that song heroes um all the period is 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 fantastic i mean he helps usher in the electronic age of music with uh with these He's working with brian eno robert fripp and others um you know i know his buddy iggy pop spending a lot of time there some people consider that the the peak of uh, of david's career uh these uh, these three albums in the later 70s um I, I i can't disagree in some ways because of the influence that those albums have especially as we move in to uh, the 80s and the uh, the new romantic period um, uh, that comes out of it, especially a lot from the English music uh, as the the decade turns. But all right, we we have to play um, a heroes. bit of heroes. desperation and hopelessness and everything that Bowie almost always writes about the alienation but yet there's some form of optimism in there as well it's it's a great song yeah one of my favorites all right so uh that gets us into uh oh the 80s where are we at now lodgers scary monsters or let's dance 
Um, I'm going to go with Let's Dance. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's Dance for 100. You All know. right. What do you got there? Well, I love to dance, so, you know. That's uh, I kind of uh, get more. The most commercial aspect of Bowie's career, uh, he basically rules MTV for about uh, a year or two. Uh, he's on the cover of Time Magazine. Uh, he's filling stadiums. It, it's a big point uh, in his career. Um, produced by Nile Rodgers, pretty crazy. So let's talk about the interview. Yeah, I, I think the um, one of the things that kind of piqued my interest about this interview was this is the album on which he brought Stevie Ray Vaughan, who I've always loved, and um, oh, the, Killer, the great blues, blues guitar yeah, player. Yeah, Austin-based guitar player who had met an untimely death. Yeah. And um, apparently he met Bowie at the 1982 Montreux Jazz Festival in Switzerland. And after seeing Vaughn's performance, Bowie was so impressed with the guitarist, he later Who said, be? yeah, he later said, um, I probably hadn't been so gung-ho about a guitar player since seeing Jeff Beck. So, um, and, and then Vaughn said, they quote, Vaughn is not interviewed in this, but they quote him from another interview saying, to tell you the truth, I was not very familiar with David's music when he asked me to play on the sessions, which I thought was really funny. <laughs> uh, David and I talked for hours and hours about our music, about funky Texas blues and its roots. I was amazed at how interested he was. At Montreux, he said something about being in touch. Always and then, a curious mind. Then he tracked me down in California months and months later. So he he was impressed with Stevie Ray Vaughan, an amazing genius talent, and tracked him down and had to have him for this album. Well, I'm not going to play all of Let's Dance. I'm just going to get to the Stevie Ray Vaughan That's bit. right. That's the best part. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Let's Dance. David Bowie and Stevie Ray Vaughan. Rest in peace. Yes. Um, I think, let's see, Bowie did uh, a follow-up tonight, uh, ruling the airwaves of MTV between uh, those two albums. Uh, I know tonight was a critical failure, um, didn't chart that well. Um, I think the, the uh, Blue Jean was, uh, was uh, the only hit on it. And then he kind of just walked away from it all um, and started a band called Tin Machine that I was lucky enough to see uh, with Reese Gabrell and uh, Sales Brothers, uh, Tony and Hunt Sales. Um, and uh, they, they were a, a badass rock and roll band, uh, loud and just, uh, you know, definitely a, a real band attitude. Let's talk a little bit about that. Do, do, do we got anything from that era? Yeah, definitely. Um, there were two or three interviews from that era. And um, what I got, what I picked up from that was that 
Bowie really needed some rejuvenation and inspiration, and he just wanted to see what it was like being a band member. And he um, got a lot of, you know, direction from Reeves Gabrels, uh, saying, basically, just do what you want to do. Why are you doing things that other people want you to do? Just, just you know, do something that you are excited about and you want to do. And this, this was it. And, um, he was, you know, totally into the idea of being a band member and not being a solo artist at that, at that point. And he, um, you know, he just really, I think, you know, even looking back on it in later interviews, even though the, the albums themselves weren't really wildly popular. Yeah, they weren't popular, big sellers or that. Yeah, I think he really got a lot out of that. I don't think he, he, he actually says in one of his last interviews that one of his favorite bands is Tin Machine. I mean, he loved that band. It was a great band. Yeah. I, I loved them. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and this, the guitar, is was Reeves Gabrels the guitar player? Yeah, he yeah. was the guitar player, and he, yeah. He just kicked his butt, you know, into, and that was a very um, democratic, it really was. I mean, even though Bowie tried. kept saying that to, to people like, no, we are a band and nobody really believed it. They really were a band. Yeah. I mean, they they really all had their say in what was going to happen and, to the music. And, and so, you know, in that way, he totally got what he wanted from it. And I don't think he regrets it at all. It didn't sound like. No, and in some ways, I always felt they were a bit of a precursor to some of the alternative uh, music of the 90s. Oh, that's probably true. Yeah, I missed the I missed the whole Tin Machine thing, but I'm now now I know a little bit more about it and I've listened to some of it and I I can definitely see the uh, the allure. Well, let's uh let's play a song from Tin Machine. Um I'm going to go with Heavens in Here, one of my favorites. Part of a band, uh, <laughs> folks. If you've never heard of Tin Machine, please go and uh, pick up. Uh, I believe they have two albums. Uh, the first one from '89 is uh, is the more known of the two, and that's definitely where Heaven's in Here. Uh, so, Cheryl, Shelley, where are we? Where are we going? We are just going to the end here. Oh, so let's see. You said 69 <laughs> to 2003. Yeah. So 2003 would have been uh, the reality uh, tour uh, the reality album. Uh, right. Again, uh, uh, I, there's some, some great songs on that album, uh, and I was lucky enough to see Bowie uh, one more time on that tour uh, in January of 2004, uh, which was so, geez, about six months before he had the... Uh, the heart attack that um, pretty much ended his uh, touring life and uh, and obviously the interviews, because I know he quit doing any press uh, after that. Yeah, um, actually, just just before that, there's a few interviews from um, the like 2000 and 2003, just a handful. One of them in 2000, he was voted the most influential rock and roll artist of all time 
by his peers. I in would the, agree, but in uh, the new musical Express I'm only again. One person. Okay. Yeah, that was kind of iffy, but he was apparently very. Um, I mean, very the, honored by that. There are the Beatles you have to worry about, but. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> But well, they were only the Beatles for a certain amount of time. True. And then they went their separate their own ways. Way. Yeah, they were not. Uh, uh, There's some great music that don't get me wrong. That John Ball and George and Ringo do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, and Ringo still uh, out there uh, pounding the pavement and making some things happen with a great all-star team. And of course, Paul McCartney's still uh, uh, everywhere. But they're, they're both on the planks. But they're they not sing. influencing. Yes, they are on the planks. Yes, they're not influencing. And you know. David Bowie did, and just to kind of wrap this up um, here, you know, as we all know, um, David uh, died uh, on um, January tenth, uh, two days after his last album, which. I and many others consider a, a masterpiece. Black Star uh, came out. Um, if you were going to make your life a performance art, um, I don't think anybody did it better than he ever did. The characters that he created, the songs associated with those characters, um, the some of the folks that he worked with, um, uh, all stars in their own right, some of the folks that he helped, uh, Lou Reed, Iggy pop uh desperate times in their careers um we talked about uh Nile Rogers and uh Stevie Ray Vaughan um even Bruce Springsteen um uh has a story about David Bowie helping him in the early the early years he was a very giving artist and in the end he gave us this wonderful goodbye letter uh and I highly recommend anybody pick it up and listen to it Shelly, anything else for us before we go? Uh, only this, that when asked the, what he would have done if he weren't a rock and roll star, he had two ideas. One was that he would have been a full-time painter. And I the could other, see that. The other would have been, well, he said, I'm not sure that librarian would have been the right word. Something where I was quite close to <laughs> books really? and research. Uh, yes. Wife and library. Those are the two things I probably would never give up. And um, as a side note, he took 400 books with him to the film shoot of The Man Who Fell to Earth, which I believe was in Mexico. So yeah. he was quite quite a book a book man, which, oh, of course, yes. I have to love. Yes, yes. Wow, that's uh, pretty incredible. Um, well, uh, to the man uh, who uh, meant so much to so many, let's leave you with a little of Black Star. Social injustice? 
Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. The Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast is produced and hosted by Christian Swain. Written by Richard Evans and Christian Swain. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information.